fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, I'm going to be speaking with one of our former guests. You may remember him from our episode on cannabis that came out a few years ago. He's now working at the Rockefeller Foundation, um, where he focuses on a developing a more nourishing, regenerative, and just food system. Um, his name is John DeLapara, Dr. John DeLapara, um, and he drives programming, grant-making, performance, and partnership within the food portfolio, including the development of the periodic table of food through the Rockefeller Foundation. So John regularly delivers lectures and short courses on ethnobotany, food system innovations, agriculture, and medicinal plants. He's a former associate at Harvard University Herbaria, where his work focused on understanding how indigenous peoples use plants for food and medicine. While at Harvard, he redeveloped the legendary course, Plants and Human Affairs, which has been taught at Harvard since 1876 and represents the oldest course in the United States focused on plants and their uses. He's also held additional appointments as a research scientist at MIT, a lecturer of environmental studies at Tufts University, and a lecturer of biotechnology at Northeastern University. John grew up on a farm in rural Alabama, with his family originating in Mexico and South America. America, and it was his grandmother's early teachings on plants that inspired him to become an ethnobotanist working with indigenous populations to understand how phenotypic selection influences plant-based drug discovery and food choice. So it's really great to see you, John. Um, it's, I, I know that everything is going really well with your programs. I'm excited to learn more about um, what you're up to. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah. I think that maybe it would be good if we just jump right into this topic of regenerative food systems and how that kind of intersects with um, climate change strategies and really where does food sit at the nexus of climate change? It's a great question because food really is right at the nexus of these. We actually just held a convening where we had some of the top scholars in the world come together specifically to think about how does climate change intersect with, sect with food quality and planetary health in general? Food quality can mean many things to many different people. It doesn't just mean the flavor of food or the nutritional aspects of food. It absolutely does include those things. But what we learned, especially in this, in this convening, is that food quality can have social dimensions. It can have cultural dimensions, religious dimensions a lot of things that are often not as quantitative as the number and identity of specific compounds that are in our food. And what we're seeing is that as climate is changing and putting pressures on society in different ways, the quality of our food is changing. And it could be that it's less nutritious. It could be that there's less of it. Um, but it could also mean that uh, some of the societal aspects and integrations of the way that we uh, harvest food, the way that we grow food, the way, the way that food is in our lives is also changing and, and not for the better. Um, so that's just, you know, that's just talking about food quality. Of course, agriculture has a huge impact on uh, many of the things that contribute to climate change. And it will be very important in the coming years that we have a transition from the types of conventional agriculture that the world has been uh, doing more and more in the past several decades to a more regenerative way of doing that. And a lot of those regenerative practices actually 
uh, harken back to indigenous ways of thinking about agriculture. And so when you talk about indigenous ways of thinking about agriculture and food choice, what are some examples of that? I know you've done a lot of work on phenotyping, um, but what does that really encompass altogether? There's many aspects to this. The first thing that comes to my mind when asked this question has to do with biodiversity. Um, that's just, just one aspect. But what we know is that, um, well, we, we're, first off, we're using this term regenerative agriculture. There are many other terms, and maybe we'll just uh, just pause around that for a second. Uh, many people refer to agroecology or traditional ecological knowledge. Um, and these are other ways, and some might say more precise ways of describing what is now being more popularly referred to as regenerative agriculture. Um, as I mentioned, the whole idea of, regen of regeneration in agriculture is, is something that goes back as ancient practices in traditional and indigenous cultures. One of them, as I first mentioned, is around biodiversity. So that means moving away from the type of monocropping that, that has been popularized, especially through the works of the Green Revolution. Um, in the Green Revolution, it became increasingly um, uh, popular to grow a single crop, let's say maize, soy, wheat, um, and then to grow them intensively. So that would mean with lots of fertilizer, irrigation, and other innovations that were seen as very important for a, a world with a growing population. What we've since learned through that is that many of those innovations and some of the consequences of that have led to many of the environmental impacts that we're dealing with now. So the, the general idea is that, well, if we can get back to a more regenerative form of agriculture, that this will um, help to rectify some of those errors that were made through the Green Revolution. And that has to start, I think, by centering indigenous voices, not just co-creating with indigenous voices, but centering those voices, because those voices are, have often been unheard, and many of the practices are being forgotten or lost every day. Yeah, it's 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 funny because when you hear the term green revolution, like it kind of elicits this idea of, of a sustainable green as good kind of situation, but actually it's really not. It's 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 about this major shift towards heavy agrochemicals and monocropping. Yeah. Um yeah, that's that's interesting. And so Yeah, and you yeah. use the word sustainable there too, right? I mean mm -hmm. Sustainable is one dimension, right? But but one step further than that is regeneration. So yeah. we and we believe in a lot of the work that we're doing that we need to go beyond just sustainability and actually regenerate because we've lost so much in such a short amount of time. And so, what are some of the tools of regenerative agriculture? Because I'm sure many of the listeners aren't exactly familiar with what what that entails. I mean. Is this just another name for organic agriculture, or what is what is regenerative ag agriculture? Yeah, that's a that's a hotly debated question. <laughs> so I will not define regenerative agriculture only because there are so many definitions for it, um, and you will see it I, in the past year. I would say you'll see it all over. You'll see it on LinkedIn. You'll see it on television. You'll see it in magazines, and often you'll see it associated with big corporations that are saying that they're transitioning to regenerative. 
the issue that we're seeing is that because we don't have a clear definition of what regenerative agriculture is, it, it can easily become a greenwashing term, meaning that it's an empty term that corporations can use to make a consumer feel that they're buying something that is better for the environment, but, but how much better and is it actually better is the big question. I mean, some of the basic tenets of agroecology are often found in a definition of regenerative agriculture. And, and for many that starts with no-till, so you're not gonna till the soil, which can deplete the soil structure and deplete mm -hmm. it of micro, valuable microorganisms. But then there are many other dimensions beyond no-tilling, which might be considered the ground zero, the, the baseline for what yeah. might be regenerative. But then there are even practices that define themselves as regenerative and still allow for some tillage. So, so part of the work of a project that we're working on called Regen 10 um, is to define what that is, and it's defined by the outputs, outcomes. So, so rather than having a de novo definition of what regenerative agriculture is, it's really looking at what are the outcomes of whatever type of agriculture a system is doing which inherently recognizes that uh, systems, food systems around the world are very diverse. They're diverse in their geographical location. They're diverse in the types of foods that are being grown. Mm -hmm. And they're also diverse in the types of society and culture that surrounds them. And that's another piece that we think is very important in regenerative agriculture that isn't, I would say, is probably the least included in a definition of regenerative, but is more included in terms like agroecology and perhaps in traditional ecological practices of agriculture. And that is around the societal, cultural, religious aspects that are often tied into any culture and specifically into the production, production and uh, consumption of food. So um, what we're hoping for is a definition of what you might call deeply regenerative agriculture. So on one end, you might have shallow or lightly regenerative, and then on the other end, you might have deeply regenerative. And deeply regenerative would include things that make sure that a community is provided for beyond just the, the transactional aspect of producing food from the ground and selling it, but would make sure that people have uh, uh, equitable livelihoods, that um, uh, a community is cared for in more deep aspects, and also understanding those uh, more, um, uh, let's say, less quantitative aspects of life, like the storytelling that comes around growing food, which gives us greater insight into the qualitative aspects of of human life in general. No, that's amazing. I think I think you're absolutely right. Like the definitions matter. And I guess regulations of definitions matter. I mean, yeah. as you're speaking, this example came to mind immediately, and that was this marketing term of antibiotic-free chicken, for example. Yeah. Like, you can still inject an egg, which is what happens most commonly, with antibiotics and call it an antibiotic-free chicken, even mm -hmm. though this is like if it's post-hatch and you give it antibiotics, that's bad. But if you give it while it's still in the egg, it's considered to be antibiotic-free. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, for me, that chicken's getting the antibiotics, whether or not it's in the egg <laughs> or outside the egg. So there's this, like you said, greenwashing that can occur on the industry scale that I think many people are naive to because they are so good at making sure that you do remain naive to yeah. what's actually happening with these systems. Um, 
And so this is something I think you're right. We have to be very careful of when it comes to how things are labeled, like in terms of their the cultivation practices. Yes. I mean, and, you know, this, there is regulation to some degree around organic, um, but in the regenerative world, we just haven't had that. And it still remains to be seen how we will do that. Is it a consumer facing label that is applied to certain foods that meet some threshold? Is it a, you know, is it a score? Um, you know, all those things just haven't been defined yet. What we know is that, again, focusing on the outcomes is the most important if we're looking to make sure that the world doesn't continue down the path of, of, of changing climate the way that it has uh, to this extent. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about climate. So um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the most recent COP15, which is the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, and how some of the topics that were covered at COP15 tie into agriculture. Yes. Yeah, so um, so one aspect that, that I was deeply involved with is around um, an agreement that was reached within the so as you mentioned, COP15, there was the Global Biodiversity Framework, which was agreed upon, and um, which was a landmark decision around that had to do with a lot of the aspects of climate change. But one, but one aspect that um, I was particularly uh, interested in and had been working on for a couple of years is around what's called digital sequence information. And digital sequence information has, uh, again, it's another one of these terms that a lot of people have a lot of different definitions, but at its core, it's digital information that describes genetic resources. So maybe it's actual genetic inf sequence information, but, but there are various definitions that include chemical information about our food or agricultural products, um, actually any biological resource, or it could include protein sequences or other information. I mean, there's an argument that it could include everything that's digital that could be attached to a food perhaps even a photograph of the food, right? I mean, so, you know, there's, you know, you could follow the logic all the way along that any, any digital resource attached to a biological resource would be considered DSI, digital sequence information. So let's, so we start there. That type of information can be very valuable. And for the most part, it's not regulated on the international scale. We do have regulations around biological resources as commodities, as physical objects. So if we were to ship a mango from one country to another, we have regulations like the Nagoya Protocol, which would say that if, that, if there were benefits to be had through that particular plant or item from a plant, that there would have to be prior informed consent um, for the population from which the, the biological resource came, and there'd have to be access and benefit sharing provided to those communities um, around that biological resource. And um, so PIC is prior informed consent, ABS is access and benefit sharing. Around the access and benefit sharing, this can mean a lot of things in a lot of different settings. And there are some critiques of the Nagoya Protocol, which regulates us because it's not, uh, it, it is, it's multilateral, I mean, I'm sorry, it's uh, bilateral, meaning that these agreements happen between two countries um, and it's typically at the country to country level and agreements are made that often might exclude the indigenous group that actually uh, um, fostered that biological resource for maybe tens of thousands of years. 
Um, so, but that's that's its own issue, right? Is figuring all that out. And the U.S. also is not a signatory to Nagoya, although there are many encumbrances around Nagoya that universities and other institutions abide by. Um, officially, there is no mechanism for a country-to-country -country negotiation between the U.S. and another country with a biological resource that pertains to Nagoya. So that's all. That's all one kind of mess, right? Is is understanding all that. I mean, the principle for any researcher. Um, and theoretically, anyone that's working with plants and animal biological resources in any country is that you should have PIC and ABS. So make sure that uh, the community with which you're working knows what they are pr previously informed of what the intent is, and then that there is a reasonable uh, pr provision for access to those data and the results of those data, and that the benefits from that go back to those communities. But now we go back to the DSI that I mentioned, the digital sequence information. What about that information, which increasingly has more and more value, um, and those data can be used in novel ways that maybe we never even envisioned um, that we could use. Let's say you take the sequence from a particular plant, and now you can uh, create a specific chemical in uh, in a fermenter or you know in a you know in a biologically engineered uh, organism of some type. That is not theoretical anymore. That's something we can actually do. Or if you find a specific chemical that it happens to be in a specific plant from some uh, indigenous group, you could maybe synthesize that. Or you could grow the plant on your own and, and try to extract it. Or you could take all of that species and extract it and take it and sell it. And then maybe there's no uh, benefits that are provided to go back to those communities. So it's it's a big issue. And, it, and it's actually big for what might be seen as both sides of this issue, because um, one, of course, I've been speaking, I think, in the framework of protecting those cultures that um, may have very valuable resources um, that could be exploited um, unjustly. But then there also is a desire to be able to do science, right? We, we want to be that there's some mechanism that we can understand the world around us and maximize the benefit for the most people around the world with these things. So there, a balance needs to be struck between open and equitable uh, uh, around these, these data policies. So at COP15 in Montreal in December, the Kunming Montreal uh, Global Biodiversity uh, Framework was signed. And in that agreement is a provision that will allow for a mechanism for benefit sharing for digital sequence information. Tentatively, the um, vision is that there will be some sort of global fund that will be paid into, and then those funds can be distributed back to communities um, that are, you know, there's some kind of uh, a chain of uh, command, or, you know, that value chain or something that connects us to those uh, communities, and then the the funds can go flow back to those communities if there are funds to be made from them. Um, and there's also it gets much more complicated than that it's probably not worth going into every single aspect of it. There's multiple different organizing bodies that have a stake in this, from the uh, UN uh, provisions on the law of the seas to um, you know, any number of uh, organizing bodies that have an interest in how com commerce happens amongst countries. Um, so it, it's a very complex issue. 
and it's been relatively stalled over the past several years. And this is the first movement that we have had on it. Um, and, and we believe it's at least in part because we've taken special um, interest in this and have provided the funding to allow these groups to meet independently and, and provide facilitation so that agreements can happen ahead of COP15. Now, there'll be a COP16 in Turkey in 2024, and that is where we expect um, there to be more concreteness around this uh, global fund. Um, but just the fact that in theory, we have there's been agreement on this is a huge movement. Um, and there are also other provisions within the global biodiversity framework that point towards a necessity to find resolution on this issue. So, so the momentum has, has shifted a lot on this. And I think the takeaway is that uh, for digital seekers information, it will be regulated in some way and that there will be benefits provided back to communities that are yeah. having their digital information taken in some way. I know that's a long answer. <laughs> no, it's like, it's great though. I mean, it's, it's, it's important because it's a complex issue, right? It's not, there's not a simple way to go about this. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. More and more, um, in more and more cases, digital sequence information is important toward to development and, um, you know, from crops to, um, medications. I mean, so yeah. this is a really important aspect of, of the, the Coke agreements and, I'm wondering, so I'm understanding now Rockefeller Foundation's kind of role in, in, in area of interest here. How, what, how, how is the larger, how does the larger kind of Rockefeller perspective on climate strategy look? Like yeah. what are, where are they really investing? I know you're working on food and trying to, you know, through the periodic table of food initiative to get a better handle on the chemical composition, the small molecule, uh, micronutrient composition of different foods around the world. That's one aspect. What else, or maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but then also yeah. in the larger context, what's the, what's the bigger climate strategy? So uh, in June, we will have an official board meeting where a new strategy is approved. So I'll speak kind of tentatively on what we're thinking around climate. Um, but that being said, there was an announcement made last summer by the president of the foundation that we'll be shifting to climate action at the foundation. And it'll be, I believe it's the a first of its kind, 100% shift from top to bottom at a philanthropy to be uh, supporting climate change uh, or, you know, uh, preventing climate change efforts. So, um, you know, there's a number of things that are being talked about now. We've already done some work around green energy and uh, and some of that work has been happening actually for several years. For the food team, uh, we're really lining up around regenerative agriculture. We think that it's a space where, you know, I mentioned one is we don't have good metrics. We don't know what it actually is, but we know that the outcomes from it have a lot of benefit. Um, and how do we measure whether that is good or not, you know, how, how do we measure the impact of that? The, a lot of discussion has been around reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. That's certainly going to be, you know, if we're looking for like an overriding top line metric, then it will probably be around reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. What we're also hoping is that there's an additional metric around biodiversity. Because when we have an, one reason for this is because you know, one lesson I think that we can learn from the Green Revolution thinking, of which the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and others 
were driving forces behind the Green Revolution many decades ago was that often the metrics were one single thing, like um, preventing starvation, right? Which is a very noble and excellent goal to have. But when you have, when you don't, when you don't embrace systems thinking, when you only have a very linear and single metric, that tunnel vision can sometimes lead to unintended consequences that you couldn't possibly foresee because you're not investing in the deep understanding of what happens when you perturb a system. So while we can point to millions of people perhaps saved from uh, starvation through the Green Revolution, which is an absolute good, we aren't measuring and balancing and thinking about a future where we have to think about um, the climate crisis that we have now. And perhaps if we had developed the Green Revolution technologies or at least started the thinking 50, 60 years ago, we would be in better shape now. So, so the hope is that with a new climate strategy, we aren't, uh, we aren't falling to a type of uh, tunnel vision, but we actually include things like biodiversity which I think uh, includes things like supporting traditional and indigenous communities because indigenous and traditional communities are the land stewards of 80% of the world's biodiversity. So we, that means we would have to invest in those communities. And because those communities are doing agriculture in a way that is inherently at least sustainable, if not regenerative, and that there's a lot to learn from those communities before that uh, ancient wisdom is lost. In the same way, you and others, and me to some extent in the past, have worked with communities uh, on medicinal plants and understanding that there is a deep knowledge that with every generation is lost more and more. There's a similar parallel to agricultural practices. Um, and that means that part of our strategy is including, and again, not just including, but centering to the extent possible the voices of ind indigenous and traditional communities. Um, and, you know, we don't, we can't, as you know very well, indigenous community, when you speak of indigenous and traditional communities, they're both externally and internally diverse, right? So there isn't an indigenous community. There are indigenous communities and they all have their own priorities and culture and, and, and differences as diverse as anything else in the world. So what that means is that if we need to, we need to reflect that diversity in the investments that we make and set an example for other groups and governments to invest in those communities. And what that can mean is that for us, we invest in a variety of groups that represent different types of critical uh, agriculture that's uniquely impacted by climate change. So I have grantees that, for instance, are working in high mountain agriculture, doing deeply regenerative work that's connected to uh, Buddhist spirituality in Nepal. Um, I have grantees who are working on regenerative blue foods in the island nation of Fiji, where they're being uniquely affected by rising ocean. Um, we have grantees uh, doing agroforestry in Northern Colombia. We have grantees, uh, indigenous women in the deep jungles of Colombia. Each of these represent ancient practices by uh, traditional and indigenous communities where knowledge needs to be preserved, promoted, but they're working in with different crops and different geographies, and they're all very unique, but the principle is the same, that it's not about replacing these groups with the new technocratic, you know, innovation, but um, it's about uh, 
elevating and supporting the work that's being done on the ground in many of these places. Well, that's amazing. I love the diversity of projects and the diversity of people working in these projects. I think that's really critical um, to have folks on the ground in these very different ecosystems and different cultural systems as well. Of like, you know, when you're looking at spirituality, you're looking at um, cultural value systems um, within these different locations. That's all part of developing a healthy <laughs> agricultural system. And I think all too often, those are things that get either dismissed or are not really taken seriously as part of the part of the exploratory work in this field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have some work now we're talking with Hopi farmers in Arizona, where um, it actually and they're they're linked to the University of Arizona, right? So we have there, you know, we have university professors working who are themselves Hopi farmers and are working with Hopi farmers in a hotter, drier planet that's already previewed in a place like Arizona, right? So there's an opportunity to learn about how to do agriculture in a hotter, drier world just through the indigenous practices of the Hopi in Arizona. And at the same time, they're working with data sovereignty issues um, that intersect with digital sequence information and other types of data sovereignty issues um, so there's multiple angles to learn uh, through these types of projects, but every one of them is very diverse. And, and we think it's an opportunity to celebrate and to elevate these types of knowledge systems. So in addition to the work with, in terms of funding for, for different studies on different agricultural systems within different environments, Rockefeller Foundation is also very involved in education and outreach. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that with us on, on what those activities look like. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's, there, you know, when whenever we're doing this work, Rockefeller Foundation is a scientific philanthropy. That's kind of what our legacy has been about through innovation and uh, and and also new technologies. So you know, I think it takes both. I, I talked about how there often is a technocratic bent towards the shiniest, brightest new technology, um, and and not saying that that's not important, but it's not the only thing, right? So it's balanced with uh, supporting just agricultural systems and understanding and letting uh, those, uh, especially groups who have been traditionally um, not elevated by these systems to now be elevated. But, but for that technological aspect, there is a great desire around the world for people to learn more about their world, to be able to apply the tools that maybe have only been privy to those uh, in in the West and the North, um, and you know, disseminate those tools and allow them to flourish in new environments. So, um, the one of the ways that we're doing that is through a, I, th I think you mentioned briefly the Periodic Table of Food Initiative, which is a project that I oversee at the foundation. It's an effort to standardize and democratize our ability to um, uh, measure and analyze food composition around the world, which is very important for many uh, countries around the world that haven't been able to measure their food composition, but also to give us a greater depth than we ever had before. So through that initiative, we developed two additional initiatives. One is called Good Food U, or as in university, and one is called Good Food Fellows. And those are, uh, Good Food U is an online platform 
to provide training to people anywhere in the world on um, actually many different aspects of food, nutrition, agriculture, et cetera. The first platform we're developing is on foodomics or the study of the, uh, the complexity, chemical complexity of our foods. Um, so one question you often get is, okay, so you're measuring more of the chemistry of our foods, but who cares and why? So this is partly to help the world understand why you might care and how you might apply food omics to any specific issue that's happening in your community. So we have uh, nine centers of excellence around the world, seven of which are not in the US or Europe, they're in other parts of the world, in South America, Africa, Asia, and uh, the South Pacific. And, and specifically, we're, we're focusing on those centers of excellence as disseminators of this type of technology and, and, and education. And, and, and like, as I said, that, that's our first uh, platform is around foodomics, but we have a vision for platforms around regenerative agriculture, around another project that we have uh, called Food is Medicine, which is an, uh, you know, an effort to understand how our food plays a role in, in our health in, in new ways, um, and many other platforms. So we, we hope to and expect to expand that platform. And then we have a project, as I mentioned, Good Food Fellows, which um, harkens back to uh, maybe 20 or 30, maybe even longer years ago, uh, the foundation had a project that was colloquially called Rocky Docs or Rockefeller doctoral students. Um, and these were postdocs or doctoral students that were given fellowships to study typically green revolution technologies all around the world. And as a kind of response to that, Good Food Fellows is, the, it's a similar program in that it's fellowships specifically through these centers of excellence around the world. Um, to provide uh, locally specific uh, research um, led by the researchers in those areas. And as a part of that, there has to be a demonstration that uh, these, ty these types of research are participatory, meaning that there's some evidence that this is something that's being asked for by the community and not kind of a helicoptered in solution, but that there's actually local applicability and desire for these types of solutions. Um, so the fellows will support um, master's students, un, uh, graduate students, postdocs to do these types of research um, all around the world. And we're really excited for that project is just getting started. We expect the first cohort uh, to be in early 2024. That's amazing. So there's there's so much going on with Rockefeller. Um, John, where can I send people to, to read more about the activities at the foundation? Um, is there a website we can send them to? Yeah, you can go to rockfound.org is our website. Um, mm -hmm. It has everything on it that we're doing. Um, and you can reach out to me through, uh, I'm sure there'll be some contact information mm -hmm. provided here through, yeah. through my social media. But um, but yeah, we look forward to, we always want to hear from people, uh, their ideas. So don't hesitate to reach out. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us on the show today, John. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. Um, if you'd like to find out more about the show, you can head over to foodiepharmacology.com. You can also help us out. 
um, with the show by going to mysterycontrol.com and there you can find lots of great um, uh, t-shirts and mugs and bags with fun um, foodie pharmacology logos and also some other kind of fun um, art and t-shirts and so on. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time.